Well, church, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians. That if you've been worshiping with us for a little while, that should be no surprise to you. We've been studying this wonderful passage here in Colossians chapter 1, uh, verses 15 through 20. It's been called the Christ hymn. And that is because it is this unfolding of the glories and the majesties of Jesus. And I'm excited to be able to end uh, this passage of Scripture with you this evening as we consider Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, as we uh, rejoice in the glories of our Lord and Savior. And so let me read this passage for, for you, be, beginning there in verse 19. Hear now the word of God. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by his blood. Our Father, we're thankful for your word in which we can consider. We're thankful for the, the word which has already uh, been read for us this evening. And what glories it is to remind ourselves of what Christ has done through scripture. And even now we're, we come with eager hearts and hungry souls that you might reveal yourself to us as we sit under your word. Pray has been prayed long ago. Speak, Lord. For your servants are listening. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. It was in May of 1738 when a group of uh, very devout Anglicans began to gather together. These were very moral men, very religious men, men very uh, observant men with their religious activity. And yet every one of them to a man realized that though they were very active re religiously, that internally... They were empty. That is, they, that they, they observed all the religious rituals uh, that, are, that the Anglican Church brought, but there was no internal reality that corresponded with their outward acts. And so they met every night to discuss this somewhat of a crisis of faith that they had, to discuss their struggles. Two of those men you might have heur heard of, uh, John and Charles Wesley were among them. And then, of course, uh, a good friend of theirs, uh, William Holland, was another of their uh, among them and, and others as well. In fact, Charles Wesley would write in his journal that he went to church and took the Lord's Supper, but he would write, I received the sacrifice, but not Christ. In other words, he realized he's just simply going through the motions. Yes, I took the bread and, and the wine, but, but there was no Jesus there for me. Well, William Holland, who was attending these meetings, on one of their evenings brought Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Galatians. And he handed it to Charles, and he said, will you read the preface for us? This is what Charles Wesley read on that evening. The words of Martin Luther. Do we work nothing for the obtaining of righteousness? In other words, do we do work in order to become righteous? That's Luther's question. I answer, nothing at all. But to believe this only, Christ sits in heaven at the right hand of his Father, not as a judge, but made for us by God's wisdom, righteousness, holiness, and redemption. So Luther said, we don't work for righteousness, we simply believe in Christ as our righteousness. Holland would write when he heard Wesley read those words, this is what he wrote. At those words, 
I broke through. Suddenly power came on me and I truly knew who he was. In other words, William Holland became a Christian. In fact, the, the impact was so profound upon him, Charles, who was reading these words, recognized it in Holland, for Charles would write later of that evening, quote, Mr. Holland seemed to have found faith tonight, but I don't get it. Well, he would. Four days later, Charles Wesley was in church in the service, and he would write about that service, I found it. I saw by faith, though of myself I am always sinking in sin, so I went to bed sensing my weakness, but finally and for the first time confident in Christ. One year later, he would write words we have just sung. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Mild he lay his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. That's Christmas, isn't it? That's the meaning of Christmas, that Christ, the Son of Righteousness, laid aside his glory, was born here, uh, mild, if you will, in order to save the sons of earth, you and I. That's the story of Christmas. Yet my fear is that so many miss it. They kind of breeze right by it. I know of a pastor who, who once uh, served in rural Virginia where uh, hog, hogging was, uh, raising hogs was, was very prominent. He said when he first moved in that area, the smell was overwhelming. He said, he'll never, he said we'll never get used to that smell. You know what happened? They got used to the smell. In fact, they couldn't smell it within, within a matter of months. They couldn't even smell it anymore. You see, human heart has a way of filtering things out, I think. And I think so many kind of approach Christmas in that same way. They don't see it anymore. They don't smell it anymore. They aren't impacted it anymore by it. Oh, many are religious on Christmas in particular. Many are very observant on Christmas. But I'm afraid some have no internal reality that corresponds with it. And so what I would like to do just in about 20 minutes with you is to see if we can't recapture some of the meaning of Christmas in this passage. I want to ask two questions of these two verses. Number one, how did the Son of God come to earth? And number two, why did the Son of God come to earth? Okay, that will just guide us. Verse 19 will answer the first question. Verse 20 will answer the second. So first of all, how did the Son of God come to earth? The answer, as we'll see, is the incarnation. The incarnation. Look what Paul would write in verse 19. For in him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So the baby that is born in the manger, the carpenter from Nazareth, the preacher who taught in the hills of Galilee, the man who was tried and convicted and nailed to the cross upon Calvary's hill was none other than God himself. Right? Not just another religious leader, not just another impressive personality, not just simply another prophet. What is it that Wesley said, if you will? Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. He, within Christ, is the fullness of God. Now, I, I used to think, maybe you do as well, we think about our triune God. God is a trinity. 
there's one God in three persons. We think, might think of God as a pie, and, and each, each person of the Trinity is one-third of the pie, right? And we just kind of divide it up that way. Well, Paul is very helpful to teach us that's not how it's working, not to get too deep into theological weeds this evening, but he, we're, we're told all the fullness of God is in Jesus. In other words, not a single part of God is not in Jesus. And so I think we need to affirm, and we, in fact, we often affirm that, that Jesus is fully God. But we also need to affirm that God is fully in Jesus. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit intertwined in great mystery and majesty. I appreciate what J.I. Packer, the great theologian, said. It is here that the profoundest and most unfathomable depths of the Christian revelation lie. The Word became flesh. God became a man. The Son, uh, the divine Son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Well, if this Jesus is God, I mean, if God were here, would we then not expect to see great power? Of course, did we not see him rule the storm and walk on water and feed the thousands? If he's God, would we not expect wonderful compassion? So Jesus would cure the sick and cleanse the leper and restore the paralytic and reverse deformities and raise the dead. If God were here, would we not expect amazing understanding? And so Jesus would confound the Pharisees and interpret the law and taught the scripture and proclaim the good news. If God were here, will we not expect this uh, unseen impartiality? And so Jesus would minister to both men and women, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, old and young, obedient and repentant, powerful and possessed. If God were here, will we not see, expect to see unconditional love? And so we see in Jesus sinners received and tax collectors called and prostitutes defended and the unclean embraced and the weeping comforted and the lonely welcomed. If he were God, would we therefore not accept this supernatural confirmation? Do we not know he is born of a virgin and blessed by angels and worshipped by the magi and baptized by the prophet and anointed by the spirit and extolled by the father himself? If God were here, would we not see glorious patience? And yet, he is arrested, and there is no struggle. They beat him, and there is no retaliation. They mock him, and, and he is silent. They kill him, and while they do, he prays for their salvation. If God were here, would we not expect some majestic victory? And do we not see that after everything the world can throw against him, three days later, he emerges from the dead as the victorious king? All the fullness of God is pleased to dwell in Jesus. Or as the preacher, poet John Donne wrote, "'Twas much that man was made like God before, but that God should be like man, much more." So how did the Son of God come to the earth? Answer, the incarnation. The second question is why did the Son of God come to earth? We might recognize the answer as reconciliation as we see in verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. That's an interesting phrase to me. I, I wasn't expecting to see all things when I first read this passage. In fact, when you read on, it says, whether on earth or in heaven. And so Christ has come to reconcile all things, things in heaven, things on earth. And so reconciliation that Jesus brings is not simply just a matter of 
of individual people, but it's all of creation. He wants to reconcile all, all this world, all of the cosmos. I, I don't know if you've recognized the world is a mess. Amen, anyone? Yeah. You know, 2020 has been a rough year, has it not? Right? I don't know if you've noticed. Things are not working the way they ought to work. I mean, the motto 2020 might be like unreconciled, chaotic. Right? The Bible tells us creation is in bondage to decay because of sin, Romans 8. And yet we find this amazing truth here in verse 20 that through Christ, God intends to reclaim the universe, to reconcile it. Perhaps like an accountant might reconcile the books, bringing everything into its proper place, into its proper order. God intends to bring creation back in order, that all the world will lose its hostility and its chaos, and it will all be brought back under the sovereign reign of King Jesus. We'll gladly sing on that day, no more let sins or sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. Of course, chief among whom Christ is going to reconcile are sinners, repentant sinners, right? People that are unreconciled to him, he's going to bring them back into a relationship, right? Reconciliation implies that there was one time when there was loving harmony, right? There was a time in which man had harmony with its creator, and then that relationship became broken, or we might call it alienated, right? And, and, and there, there's a break of the fellowship and if there's ever, if you've ever been unreconciled with someone or alienated with someone, you recognize in order to overcome that, somebody must take a step to restore that relationship. And so we find ourselves, as humanity, unreconciled with our creator. Who is it that begins to move to restore that relationship? Well, Paul couldn't be more clear. He says there in verse 20, and through him. It's Jesus who took that initiative to restore our relationship with him. He's doing this. Sometimes you hear people utter the phrase, God has a lot to answer for. Have you heard people say that? As someone, I think that's, that's somewhat of a stunning statement to me. As if God were the problem. As if the one who is the source of all the good that we daily, mindlessly enjoy and partake of. That he is the trouble. And when difficulty arrives, rather than looking in the mirror, we so often point our arrows up into heaven. And yet, in spite of this, God continues to seek after us. That is equally stunning, isn't it? He's like a, as scripture presents him, a continually spurned spouse who refuses to close his heart to his wayward bride. For we read in the word that while we were his enemies, he befriended us, while we hated him. He loved us while we rebelled. He offered us mercy. Once again, I turn to the words of Wesley. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. That's what Christ does. He reconciles us. But you notice the goal there in verse 20. Why is it that we're being reconciled? Well, we see there, if you read very carefully, he says there in verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself. To himself. We're being reconciled to him. That's the goal. Peter would write something very similar in chapter 3 when he would say, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that 
he might bring us to God. And so we might ask, why do we want forgiveness? Why do we want reconciliation? Well, we're told here it is because it brings us back to God. It restores that relationship with him. I don't, I don't know if you've ever had an experience like this where you get up in the morning and, and you're walking to the bathroom and maybe uh, your, your, your wife, she's, she's left something on the floor. She left her shoes on the floor where they shouldn't be and you trip over the shoes. Right? And, of course, at that point you have a couple options of how to re- respond. Right? You, you, I'm sure most of you just kind of move the shoes to the side and assume the best of your wife. Sadly, I don't always have that response. There are times when I act out of proportion and say something nasty in response. You know, I almost broke my neck. What's wrong with you? You're going to kill somebody. Put your stuff away. That's why you have a closet, right? I mean, you have a whole room for shoes. Why can't you use it, you know? I'm, just hypothetically, these things come out of people's mouths. Well, you know, your wife may get out of bed, and she might move the shoes at that point, and they're not saying a word, and you could tell by the silence and the way she acts, right, there is, I'm in trouble, right? And you enter the kitchen, and there's ice in the air, her back is to you, and what needs to happen at this point? Well, at this point, you need to ask, I need to ask for forgiveness for the way I responded. And my question to you is, why do I want forgiveness in that situation? Why would you? Is it so she'll actually make your coffee and you you don't want to get to it this morning? Is that why you want it? Maybe you want the guilt to go away so you can concentrate at work. Maybe maybe you just don't want to deal with the argument. Maybe you're just going to ask for forgiveness to get ahead of the argument. Maybe you don't want the kids to see you bicker. Maybe that's why. Maybe you're apologizing in order to get her to apologize for leaving the shoes out. I think all of those are probably defective motives for seeking forgiveness. I think ultimately why we want forgiveness is we want the fellowship of our bride. I want my wife back. She's the reason I want forgiveness. You see, forgiveness removes the obstacles that block our joy in the relationship with the other person. Christ comes to reconcile us to himself. Right? Jesus does not die simply as a way to get us to heaven. Jesus dies as a way to get us to himself, who is in heaven, reconciled to himself. He's overcoming the obstacles that we might have our everlasting joy in God. And of course, he does this at great cost to himself, where we read on in verse 20, when he says he's done all this, he is therefore making peace by the blood of his cross. It's here that our two questions are, are come together. Right? The question, first question is how he came to earth. Second question is why he came to earth. Well, we, we found out he came to earth to reconcile us, and now we discover through his blood, through the shedding of blood on the cross. And therefore, that informs how he came, by becoming a man. He had to become a man. Why did Jesus want become a man? Why can't he just come down to earth and not become a man? Of course, he could have, but he became a man so that he might have blood to shed in our place. In other words, the point of the incarnation is the crucifixion. And Jesus being crucified in our place, in the place of sinners under the judgment of God, who are in desperate need of a substitute, Jesus dies in our place in order that he might save us. Is this not what the angel said that Christmas morning? We bring you good news of great joy for unto you this day is given a course of behavior which you must perform in order to be reconciled to God. Is that what they said? 
No. Unto you is born this day in the city of David. What is it? A Savior. Can you all say that? Unto you is born this day in the city of David a? A Savior. A Savior. We need to be saved. That means that our reconciliation, to be reconciled to God, God the eternal son became a man, became a human being, and was slain on the cross in order to take our place. Why? Well, he tells us there in verse 20, so that we might have peace, making peace. It was during the dark days of World War I that a man and his son went walking amongst the, the neighborhoods in, in a terrible time in, in English history when many English sons had given their lives in this terrible war. And the boy noticed that many of the houses in their, the, the, t- the tallest window of the house had a star in the window. And he asked about the star. The father explained, that comes from this terrible war. It shows that those people that in that house had given a son in the war. Well, they walked a little bit further, and as evening drew more deep, the young boy stopped and pointed to the night sky where the first bright evening star had begun to shine, and he said, look, Daddy, God must have given a son too. It is in this terrible war of sin in order to reconcile us to God, God gave his son. That's how the war is won. That's how we have peace. I think, sadly, many people think that God, uh, God's approval is kind of, ju- uh, of us is, is what is his job. It's God's job to forgive us. That's what God does. And let's just be very clear. I think it's clear here in verse 20 that God owes us no obligation to forgive us. But he does offer us a way through receiving Christ by faith. So in light of God's word this evening, on this eve of Christmas Day, I offer you eternal peace tonight through faith in Jesus. And for my Christian brothers and sisters, as we rehearse these truths that we know so dearly, may this truly be good news of great joy, that we would rejoice in Christ our Lord, and that we might even do so through this Lord's Supper, which we now turn to. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, We thank you for the great work of reconciliation which Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. We thank you that he was willing to shed his blood for us. We pray that these would not just be old truths that we've learned years and decades ago, but they would truly be majestic, that we would truly be in awe once again. I'm reminded that it was Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welsh preacher, who said every time he heard the gospel, he felt like getting saved all over Father, will you not give us a great yearning and joy and delight this evening, this Christmas Eve, for our Lord and the work he has done. I pray for my friends here who are unreconciled to you. May they recognize that you offer it to them. You offer them forgiveness of sins and reconciliation through faith in Christ. May you give them that faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.